This is a JECH podcast on polypill and specifically on the question whether polypill can be reframed as a vaccine for cardiovascular disease. And we have four participants in this podcast today. My name is Martin Bobak and I'm one of the two editors of JECH. My name is Michael Holmes. I'm an assistant professor at the University of um, Pennsylvania in Philadelphia and I'm also an associate editor at JECH. My name's Dr. Neeraj Bala, and I'm a uh, physician and epidemiologist uh, trained in the UK. I'm Richard Cooper. I'm a cardiovascular epidemiologist in Chicago. Michael and Neeraj, could you summarize your main argument which you present in your piece? Neeraj, you want to go first? Yes, okay. So I think, as many of us know, many of the um, the origins of the discussion about the polypill come from targeting the population distribution of causal risk factors um, rather than targeting only those at high risk. I think stemming um, from work done over the last 15 years, several established causal risk factors for cardiovascular disease now exist with proven, each having a separate target for pharmacological intervention. The polypill that I suppose we're talking about in this context really is on cardiovascular disease treatments and combining these multiple drug treatments into a single pill could potentially maximize efficacy and also help with use of drugs by minimizing concordance issues. This has been a controversial topic in many ways, partly due to concerns about medicalization of otherwise healthy individuals. In the article uh, we wrote, we sort of set forth some reasoning that an approach such as the polypill should be considered an important uh, means to treat and prevent vascular disease and also provide from a population-based perspective the best potential from health from which all individuals could also benefit. We set this out as very much akin to the approaches used in, in, in other established epidemiological areas such as vaccines, where um, there are a number of um, different disease areas where such an approach is used and that this was equally valid in cardiovascular disease. So I suppose that's some of the background. I don't know if Michael or anyone else wants to add any points here. Thanks, Neera. Jim, I would just add that um, we have these very efficacious treatments for infectious diseases which have helped combat disease. And now that we're moving along the epidemiological transition and the, the biggest cause of death now is cardiovascular disease and other um, preventable diseases, and um, we should think about using drugs as um, a saving of or preventing these diseases which will which will eventually cause our death um, by pharmacologically modifying targets. Um, I think the, the original uh, sort of aspect of your piece is that you call it as an analogue to vaccination. But vaccination is usually given once or in three times and then it's protective for many years. While the polypill would need to be administered regularly, Richard in his commentary has raised the issue of adherence. Richard, would you like to say something about that? Sure. Well, I think in the United States, we probably have the longest time series of trends in cardiovascular risk factors and outcomes. And as I'm sure people know there's been an 
drop in coronary heart disease. And um, the biggest, largest component of that has been a decline in mean cholesterol in the population from about 220 to about 195 milligrams. And what's also interesting is that the use of aspirin accounts for about 4% of the decline, which is larger than the combined effect of surgery and angioplasty. So I don't think there's any doubt that widespread reduction in risk factors would have a, a very large effect. I think the evidence-based that strategy still stands. My concern is if we move to the discussion about implementation, three major things that, that I think are a big concern. One is acceptance by the medical profession. Most of these people are going to talk to their doctor about it, and doctors have a tendency to uh, wrinkle their nose at recommendations which come outside of official guidelines, and to some extent to overemphasize potential side effects. Um, the second, which we talked about, is adherence, which is, of course, a general problem. And we know in most societies, about half of the people who are prescribed the statin by their physicians stop taking it within a year which doesn't mean that this 30% continue to take a poly pill that you wouldn't see some advantage, but we need to figure out ways to do a little better. And the third thing is we're kind of in this odd period now where at least in the United States, we've gone, what I would say is a step backwards in terms of aggressiveness for both the cholesterol guidelines and the blood pressure guidelines so that using the level of cholesterol as a, as a guide to when to initiate therapy the statin has been questioned, and we've raised the threshold for goal of blood pressure treatment to 150. So we're going to come at uh, the, the practicing doctor now with something which appears more aggressive when the official guidelines are, are slightly less. So I would think that the most likely way this would be a benefit is if it was done within the context of an organized health system where, for example, one could summarize the cardiovascular risk of all the patients in that practice, if, say, in some European countries, that would be virtually the entire population, and then begin to manage the collective risk of that population in some sort of an organized way. And there, a poly pill could certainly have substantial benefit. It might not be something you would give to the entire population, but you could set goals for reducing overall global risk at the individual level and at the population level if you have that information. We we worked with some of the groups in Spain where essentially 100% of the population is in the medical system, the single medical system, and the data there would be available for that kind of surveillance. I guess what I'm saying is that it seems to me that in the next phase, this is probably going to be a hybrid approach something managed in one way or another by the health practitioners in the healthcare system, but used much more broadly than we have used these agents in the past. There was a study um, um, called the Comprehensive Cardiovascular Community Control Program, the CCCP, which tried to sort of look at more, a more individual approach. Because the, the benefit of the polypill is really that everybody is, everybody is treated above a certain age threshold. And so you don't really individualize, you don't personalize. It's sort of like a blanket treatment to, to reduce the bias of, of choice that we know are harmful to the cardiovascular system. And the, the CCCP study, which did try and take a more 
individualized approach actually didn't seem to have any beneficial effect beyond what was actually occurring in the background. I know it's, it's controversial and different people have different opinions about it, but there was a very nice article by Shar Ibrahim and I think George David Smith, which which discussed it a few years ago. So I think um, the benefit of the polypool is really that we don't need to target this at individuals. We, we give it to everybody. But then we have problems, obviously, which we haven't touched upon yet, about things like risk of type 2 diabetes and and concordance as well. I think concordance is really something which affects all drugs. And just because a percentage of individuals will stop taking treatment irrespective of what you do, that shouldn't be a reason not to pursue the polypill as a strategy to reduce cardiovascular disease. Neeraj? Hearing some of those points, and it just kind of made me realize that you know a lot of the, uh, the, the challenge um, with this particular topic is which approach do you take? Do you take a population-based approach or do you take a very individualized approach? And, and I think what perhaps Richard's alluding to is that, you know, perhaps this hybrid approach of both. But by actually perhaps aiming to implement a polypill in a healthcare system, working as a, a practicing physician as well, one of the things that will happen is that, that care will be, get individualized, either as a result of um, side effects which lead to a therapeutic change or as a result of um, well, perhaps potentially because of concordance because the patient can't take it or because of the need because of you know a dynamic change in the absolute risk for the person to take a um, for the person to take a, an increased um, effect of a medication I suppose the the issue is at a population level and even in terms of what we're offering individual patients, are we actually offering them evidence-based treatments that we know that work? So um, just to add some specificity to what the drugs would be, we're talking about sort of uh, use of a combination of low-dose agents, including statins, where there's evidence from uh, large meta-analyses of randomized trials, including more than, I think, 200,000 patients, similar numbers for blood pressure, pressure, lowering drugs, and then, you know, and all of these drugs are, are very widely used throughout the world, um, but it's about the approach we're using them, because we've kind of got focused in on targets and trying to adopt an individualized approach and losing sight of the overall approach, which is to reduce, which is to reduce the cardiovascular risk. This is Richard Cooper, if I might just come in. I'm entirely sympathetic to that concern and clearly as I started as I said at the beginning the decline in serum cholesterol which was primarily a result of change in eating habits and food production it was the single largest contributor to declines in coronary mortality and I think that's the virtue of the metaphor or analogy if you will to the vaccine I guess I'm mixing that with what might be considered a dose of realism, hopefully not skepticism. Um, in our short paper, we referenced the experience in Cuba where as a result of the collapse in the trade agreement with the USSR, um, mean weight dropped by about 15 pounds and the death rate from diabetes fell by 50%. So the, the power of population approach is not to be doubted at all. But I think that we're in a culture where, where prescription medications 
are so closely tied to the health system that frankly it's just hard for me to see this operate outside it. I mean, aspirin, I guess, is one exception. And, you know, physicians are reasonably so concerned about the relative risk of 1.3 with the increase in diabetes with statin. Talking about relatively low doses, so that may not be as important. But I guess in the in the in what I would say would be the next phase where we try to to develop new and more expanded ways to implement uh, cardiovascular prevention. It's a little bit hard for me to see how this would be a implemented and managed outside the um, health system, and and b whether it would really be feasible and acceptable to both patients and, and physicians. Clearly, there's going to have to be some experience accumulated to see if we can win over both those segments for, that are going to have a stake in it. Can I introduce slightly different arguments? We had a second commentary on, on Polypill by um, Jalico Reiner. It was published in the December issue. We didn't squeeze it into the November issue together with Richard's commentary. And uh, Jelko sits on several European Society of Cardiology committees, so I think he's quite a relevant person for this. And he raised, I think, three or four problems with polypill. I think two of them relate to the fact that they have not yet been demonstrated to to be particularly effective. Um, maybe we can you can talk about it a little bit. He also said that um, the dosage may be an issue both for effectiveness but also for tolerability by patients. And uh, finally he raised, I think, quite a common sense uh, argument that many people may view polypill as a replacement for uh, for behavioral change. You know, many people may think I'm taking polypill, I can uh, eat and drink whatever I wish. Would you like to respond to these, uh, to these points? Yeah, I, I'm, I'd be happy to make a start. So um, the first comment is about evidence um, for this. And I suppose it becomes a question of both direct and indirect. I mean, not really indirect evidence. But I mean, as I, I've already mentioned, the meta-analyses of randomized trials have been done, um, as well as other large population-based studies for each of the individual components of the polypill. There are some ongoing multi-center randomized trials of slightly subtle um, changes of this approach throughout the world. But um, the international polypill study by Salim Youssef's group randomized 1,500 people and did show efficacy. There were also kind of crossover and other designs conducted by groups in the UK um, and elsewhere. So Wall's group, which have assessed um, the polypill approach, albeit that these some of these are small, they do seem to suggest in, improved um, concord, concordance and adherence, for example. So I think in terms of evidence base, there is actually a great deal of evidence. It depends upon the lens through which you want to view it, I suppose. The second issue about side effects, you know, this is a combination of low-dose agents which are widely used and one of the kind of drivers for potentially this approach would be would be actually reduce side effects compared to perhaps uh, um, using the, the conventional high dosing. 
And I suppose this has been one of the reasons why aspirin sometimes features in the polypill or not, because probably the bleeding risk of aspirin is probably the the serious side effect at, at an individual level um, compared to some of the other drugs. These have led to, like I said, sort of nuanced different approaches of the polypill. But if you look, if you again look at kind of most of the guidelines, they seem they're suggesting that aspirin use, particularly in a secondary prevention setting, is safe. In a primary prevention setting, um, at a lower dose, you would probably use um, the lower dose of, of, of aspirin, which also has established cardiovascular safety. So, I mean, I suppose that's probably you know one nuanced argument about the polypill, but particularly in terms of the individual, the absolute risks of that are low. Um, and the same also applies for the statin diabetes argument that's been mentioned. And then thirdly, will this medicalization effectively drive some patients not to consider nutrition and, um, and exercise as you know, very important parts of the treatment? And clearly, I mean, I suppose this, this argument's used for almost any drug therapy. Um, and I don't think any of us are arguing that um, these shouldn't be used in combination with that. The question is, what are the best ways to reduce someone's cardiovascular risk? So this is something that could be used um, in the arsenal of different things, including smoking cessation, very importantly, and other non-pharmacological interventions to help reduce risk. This is Richard Cooper again. I, I think the evidence base is pretty strong, and it's were widely used, there would be net benefit. I would actually like to ask the others how they would envision this being implemented. Would someone go to the drugstore, just like you would buy vitamins and toothpaste and uh, aspirin itself, and, and purchase these pills and then begin to take them? Or would they, would they be recorded as a medication using by your primary care physician and be part of your medical records? I think on this call, we've got... Um clinicians and researchers from the USA, from the UK. I'm making the call from New Zealand. The, I think one of the, the few countries where polypills can actually be bought in that manner is actually India, where it's it's often quite widely used, um, but it requires an initial prescription, I believe. It could be facilitated by sort of being put into the existing health system that exists and so in somewhere like the us for example i'd imagine it would still require um a physician to have seen the patient and so then said right well your absolute risk even though you don't have overt cardiovascular disease would suggest that you'd benefit from this medication as well as the non-pharmacological interventions in other health systems where there's not as many physicians in the system for example um, it could still potentially be used by associated health professionals. Yeah, I mean, the United States, of course, has been an attempt to have statins be over-the-counter drugs and has been resisted. And again, it, the physician in the United States, for sure, would see him or herself as the gatekeeper and, of course, want to know what, what the patient was taking and, as always, want to pass judgment on the value of it. So I think in the United States, there might be actually more resistance to doing it than in other systems. Personally, um, from, from the three pieces, I think the biggest issue really is the adherence. 
you know, I think the analogy with vaccination really is not very good because vaccination requires one intervention in many years. While while the polypill is like it's like taking any other pharmacological medicine. And and to to make sure that people take it daily, I think would be the biggest challenge. If you had a well organized health system and you sat back and asked, how can I reduce aggregate risk of all the members of the health system, who, in fact, would be the population, I think there would be a niche or a role for a, a polypill. But it's a little hard for me to see how it would really gain sufficiently widespread use outside of some either the blessing or the assistance of the health system. Now, I can see, as he talked about, in some middle-income countries, there might be a role. And there's certainly there could be a role for other nurse practitioners or other people to manage cardiovascular risk. Um, in poor countries, the, the cost, no matter what the cost, is just going to simply make it prohibitive for the average person in the population who want to continue to use it for years, given the low absolute risk that they would be preventing. Well, I suppose age is one of the things that drives the risk. So actually, as you get older, <laughs> your absolute risk increases. Going back to uh, Martin's um, comment about adherence, there is evidence that, you know, as the number of medications you take increases, the adherence to your, to your treatment goes down. So currently there are many people throughout the world who are actually on effectively a polypill. And instead of taking three or four tablets, there'd be the potential for them to just take one. I think that's one aspect which would potentially obviate some of those issues but we probably need some further evidence from some of the ongoing ongoing studies looking at this this is a very large um, international polypill study which is i think recruiting at the moment sure and i think the type 2 diabetes risk um although present is has been overhyped by some by some scientists and physicians because I mean, diabetes kills us by chronic, by vascular disease, and the statins are effective at reducing um, cardiovascular mortality and, and also eff effective at reducing all-cause mortality. That's data from randomized trials. Um, so I think when you put that into context, the, um, the adverse consequences of type 2 diabetes are, are more than offset by the benefits of cardiovascular disease prevention. And, and I think that's something which hasn't really been a message that hasn't been well enough um, voiced um, and, and to, to physicians and to patients alike, because there's a lot of information out there about people um, stopping statins because of the risk of type 2 diabetes. And there's been articles in, in newspapers by journalists and, and, and doctors as well that are saying, well, too many people are on statins and they should be stopped taking them, which I think is, is really misguided. That, of course, depends on the balance between the absolute risk of coronary disease and the absolute risk of diabetes. I mean, in many parts well, of the world, the evolving cardiovascular risk picture is not what we think of as the standard high cholesterol, cigarette smoking, uh, hypertension driven. It's people who are obese and have a high blood sugar. In the United States, at least by the age of 40, the mean fasting glucose is, a, is above the pre-diabetic level. So there are enormous numbers of people in the population either diabetic or pre-diabetic, well over half after the age of 40. So 
it's depending on the dose again you know 1.3 relative risk of diabetes is not a trivial impact at a population level i guess the other thing is you know we've waltzed with um, the wonderful attractions of pills for many years and often lived, lived to regret it i mean many of us prescribed all sorts of drugs for ventricular arrhythmias and other stuff which turned out to be not very helpful i don't think i would be as eager to completely ignore the potential side effects of long-term use of these drugs. But but I think we'd agree that statins are amongst one of the safest drugs in the market. Absolutely. Absolutely. No doubt about, no doubt about yeah, that whatsoever. But if someone's coronary, you know, absolute coronary risk is extremely low and they're overweight, then their risk of diabetes is quite substantial. So I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all either that every population group, every society is going to approach this problem in the same way, or that the the net uh, balance of benefits and risks are going to be the same for every society. That's that's why I mean I would like to see it be severed from the medical care system. I think that would be it would be enormously helpful if we could, but I, I I'm having trouble figuring out exactly how that would happen, how that would work. If it could be released from the death grasp of the physician's office, then that would certainly make it more effective but I'm not quite sure we're ready to let it go. Um, I think we've covered a lot of things, but I suggest, can we say who of us would vote for immediate availability of over-the-counter polypill? Michael and Neeraj? I don't know if we're quite there yet, because I still think we, you know, we need the patients, you know, or, you know, the population um, to be empowered and in most places that's done by a clinician so we basically need to empower both our you know primary care clinicians and to help empower their populations um, about understanding the reasons why you know such a medication would be useful but if you're talking to me about accessibility of these medications potentially from pharmacies and other things once that kind of decision has been made because in that kind of context uncertainty would be about whether you know someone wants to take a whole stack of different treatments or to take one treatment um, at lower doses then I think we should have more um, accessibility to it so not yet over-the-counter not, not as I don't, it's a blanket statement, but I suppose <laughs> no, no to no to a blanket statement. <laughs> Michael, okay, so um, for me, I think the evidence base is pretty compelling, and I would say that with an age limit of say just now maybe forty years and above, and the, and the possibility of bringing it earlier, I think the evidence is there. But I would add the caveat that I think we still need one adequately powered. Um, phase three of randomized clinical trials of polypill, looking at hard outcomes, and also looking at adverse outcomes, so that so they can sort of dispel the myths of the of the well, not dispel the myths, but put put into context the risk of type two diabetes and the benefit of cardiovascular disease and and all cause mortality. And I think the once we have that in place, then absolutely over the counter, and um, based on based on an age threshold. Okay, Richard. Yeah, I think we still have some more homework to do in terms of science in terms of the population education, in terms of figuring out the mechanism. And I, like I said, I'd still 
feel like there's something equivalent of personal trainer or health risks or cardiovascular risk manager or whatever that will probably end up being involved in the process in the long term. So I'm not sure over the counter, even in the long term, is going to be the, the solution. Okay, um, I actually agree with Richard, but um, we definitely need some more evidence to convince uh, the most critical people yet. I think. Well, thank you. It's been an interesting discussion. It's moved my thinking, I can say that for sure. Well, thank you for everybody. Thank you.